So how does a, a good coach function? I grew up playing sports. Um, I loved playing sports. I loved being on teams. Um, and so I had a lot of different kinds of coaches. I had really great coaches, and I had ones that I'm wondering why they were the coach. Um, but uh, my baseball coach in high school, Dave Middleton, who passed away a couple months ago, uh, he coached uh, that high school baseball team for, I think, 32 years. Uh, when I got him, he was like brand new. Uh, he had pitched at San Diego State. Uh, he was, and so when he pitched batting practice to us, it was, it was brutal, you know, and uh, he was a great guy. But uh, my senior year, we played uh, uh, Hoover High School in San Diego, and they were the state champs the year before. And so many of the guys that were on their team, it was the same team. Uh, and so he prepared us before we played this uh, exhibition match against them. They weren't in our league. It was just a special game we played. Uh, he told us, you know, th these were the state champs. These guys are really good. And the catcher and the pitcher and the first baseman have all signed pro contracts. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we were used to hitting 90 mile an hour fastballs because guys in our league threw that fast. And we had guys on our team that threw that fa fast with control. So we were used to that. But this guy was around 95 miles an hour. There's a difference between 90 and 95, especially when you're batting. And, and you know, so I got, I got back in the box when I got my opportunity to give me a millisecond more to hit this guy. Uh, but the thing about him was he had a really great fastball. He had excellent control. He had a changeup. You know what a changeup is? Looks like the same delivery, and you think it's going to be 90 miles an hour, but it might be 85 miles an hour. You can look like a fool at the plate because you can swing like a couple times. Well, uh, I think I was sixth or seventh in the lineup that day. The coach told us as a good coach, these guys are really good. I know you guys are good. You got to give it your all, you know, and go after it. <laughs> so I was on the deck warming up and, you know, I had watched like the first five guys in front of me. They either, I think most of them struck out or uh, hit pop flies or whatever, but no one did anything. Most of them struck out. And I'm sitting there thinking, I am toast. This, this guy, he's striking out the front of our lineup. I mean, this is unbelievable. So I got up there and I stepped into the box uh, and I got at the back of the box to give me a little more time. Uh, I'm left-handed. The guy was right-handed. So this is going to be my advantage. Uh, and he threw me a fastball outside corner. <laughs> it hit the mitt and I swung. <laughs> I'm serious. That was so embarrassing. Step out of the box. I'm kind of looking around. The catcher who had signed, I think he signed with the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, he throws the ball back to the pitcher and he go, he's got his mask on. He goes, hey, man, you want to see that pitch again? <laughs> now, I am competitive, I will admit. I am to the bone competitive. So, so I had my, you know, Carl Yoskrimski, you know, 34-inch bat that's still in my garage. And I'm standing with my wood. Remember wooden bats? Yeah. yeah. All I hear at Lake Braddock now is tink, tink, tink. I'm like, that's not baseball. Anyway, back to my sermon. Um, so I told him, yeah, throw, same pitch. Throw me the same pitch. Um, now... I ended up, uh, I got a single off that guy. And pride comes in quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I got a single, I, I rounded first base, and I, you know, rounded, took a, you know, big, and I hit it out right field. You know, I kind of did a long run around first base, then I ran back to first base, and I'm thinking, that's pretty fast. I'm thinking, I, I could take a pretty good lead and probably, you know, intimidate the pitcher and distract him, stuff like that. And then I felt something odd was going on first base. Like something was around me that wasn't normal. and. I looked around and I was looking at the belt buckle of the first baseman, Goliath. He's like, what's up, man? I'm like, I'm not going anywhere, dude. I'm just, I'm just going to stand right here. <laughs> he had signed with Cincinnati, I think, that guy too. I'm like, this, this, is, this is unbelievable. 
what did my coach tell us? He, he prepared us in the bus, driving two hours over to San Diego. These guys are good. They're going to be hard to play. You guys are going to be on your game. You're going to have to really believe in yourself, uh, you know, be, be, be aggressive, et cetera, stuff like that. Now, we, we beat them two to one, which that was cool. We were feeling quite good about ourselves driving back to El Centro. But we were glad we had a coach who knew what he was doing. Because you ever have a coach who didn't know what he was doing? I had him. Coach Middleton knew what he was doing. Uh, when I was thinking about this passage this week, it, uh, it's like a, when I'm listening to Paul, I'm thinking, Paul's like my coach. He's telling me uh, there's, a, there's a game coming and it's going to be a tough game. And he calls that game the, the tribulation. And he, he's preparing his players, the church, for what's coming down the pike. And he's telling them in, in these books that he's writing them, especially chap, uh, in, in uh, chapters one and part of chapter two of this little book, he's telling them uh, this is going to be a really tough game. And prior to it getting really tough, it's, it's going to get fierce. So don't throw in the towel. Don't, don't quit. Don't, don't be worried. Stay the course, play hard until the coach comes for you. That's it. So I don't know, I don't know how you're, you're playing the game of life and the hard culture that we live in, uh, but, but, but Paul's giving you advice how to live in tough times, which is why we named that passage or this whole series, that particular concept. How, does, how should the Christian live in tough times? Well, Paul's the coach telling you what you should do. Uh, and these aren't just things to know intellectually. These are things to know in your mind, and then you go do them. So we need to review what he told us last week. He said, if you want to play well uh, in the season in which we, we have you, God put you here, understand your position as a player. What is your position? Uh, verse 13 was all about the fact that he, as the coach, has called us to be saved. We talked about the doctrine of election. It's in the Bible. We can't get around it. We talked about the importance of free will. Yes, we have a free will. Yes, it is mysterious how it all operates. But if you're saved, because everybody's like, how do I know if I'm saved? Trust Christ as your savior. And then when you trust him as your savior, then you know he called you because uh, you can't save yourself. And so if you are on, on the Lord's team, he graciously put you on the team. We had to put nobody on his team when men fell. And so your position is a high lofty status. And as we talked about last week, he gave you the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is with you each and every day to empower you to play well. I mean, you've got the power resident in you. And when you've got that kind of position, then you know God is always with you. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, uh, the Lord told Israel in a tough time in their national history, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Uh, when you go through the rivers, they'll not overflow you. What, when you walk through the fire, you'll not be scorched nor will the flame burn you for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy one of Israel, your savior. I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place. God says, don't fear. I, no matter what happens, I'm with you. It helps me as a Christian when I face the culture that I live in, the godlessness, the lawlessness that you see as it prepares for the lawless one to come, the antichrist, uh, to know that no matter what happens, what's my position, what's your position as a Christian? You're on the Lord's team. That's the winning team. Live as such. Now, we want to move on because he talks about more. That was just one verse last week. Uh, today, we're going to look at uh, the rest of this, uh, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. Uh, shocking, but we're going to do it. Uh, what's the other thing you should do as a player? Well, you should understand your prospects. What are my prospects as a player? He says in verse 14, and it was for, it was for this, this election, that he has called you uh, through, his through our gospel. Why did he do this? Well, that you may gain what? the glory, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now the Greek text, uh, your, the New American Standard here starts with a coordinating conjunction and, uh, that's not in the Greek text. 
the Greek text, there is no coordinating conjunction there. They put it in the text to make it smoother for you to read in English. Um, what is there is a preposition, it's called ice. And ice uh, is denoting uh, purpose. And so what he's really saying, but it's hard to translate it as such, the way this sentence is structured. But what he's really saying is in verse 13, he called you to be saved. He, he drew you to himself and he saved you. This is an unusual thing for the Lord to, to save anyone after a man's fallen in the garden. He showed grace and mercy. Uh, and his purpose was to save you, not by any work of your own, but through our gospel, through the gospel. That's when the preposition is really important. The preposition through tells you the means by which you get saved. It's not through any works of your own. It is through what? The gospel, the good news. What is the good news? We're sinners. And Jesus left the glory of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he came. He lived a perfect life, performed miracles to validate who he was. He was uh, crucified for our sins on Passover. He bore all of our sins. He died. He rose the third day, victorious over sin and death. Now he calls all people to be saved. He calls them. He calls them all, as we're going to talk about in just in a minute. Uh, you get saved uh, through the gospel. Um, are you saved? So what's the process of that? Before we look at uh, his second main purpose in the second part of that clause, we want to just talk a minute for just about the, the process of God calling, how he, how, he, how he saves the sinner. Uh, number one, and we alluded to this last week in, in John 16, uh, 8 through 11, where he, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit when he leaves. Uh, the Holy Spirit's job uh, is to convict you of sin. We talked about this. That's the first thing. He convicts you of sin and shows you that you are a sinner. As I told you last week, you did not have to convince me when I was nine, I was a sinner. I absolutely knew it, as did my entire family. Um, yeah, I knew I was a sinner. I, I knew I was a sinner. Um, but as God begins to work on you and show you your sin, you, you realize, I got I to I have some remedy. What's the remedy for my sin? Um, he begins to convict. So you receive at that point what you would call, or theologians would call, the general call of God to the world. It's like, for God so loved the world. Uh, it's that general call. In, in Matthew twenty two fourteen, here's how it puts the general call. It says, for many are called, but what's the reality? But only a few, few are chosen. Who does the choosing? Well, God does. God does. And he woos me to himself, as he says in, in John 6. Uh, and then I use my free will to choose him. But he chose me first. He chose me first because he loved me, he loved you. Uh, and so there's a general call out to the world. Uh, and then you have the elect, the chosen ones, receive the call. Um, Jesus talks about this in a, in a story that he tells. Jesus loved to tell stories. I don't know. I, I grew up in a Southern family kind of a funny family. Uh, we joked around a lot at our house uh, and told a lot of stories, especially my father. Uh, Jesus was a storyteller. Luke 14, notice what he says about calling. He says, uh, but he said unto him, let me tell you a story. There was a certain man was given a big dinner and he invited many, see, general call. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had him invited, hey, come, dinner's ready, dinner's served. It's ready now. Uh, notice the next word. But uh, they all began to make excuses. Well, the first one said to him, oh, hey, can't come. I've, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and I need to look at it. <laughs> you bought it and you didn't see it? Anyway, uh, please consider me excused. That's guy number one. And another one said, yeah, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going out to try, try them out. Please consider me excused. This is the guy who was like, hey, I can't come to church today. I just bought a Corvette. It's a new one. Cost me $112,000. And I, I, need to, I need to drive it. See if I like it. Really. 
Um, lame excuse. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. <laughs> uh, we won't even talk about that one. Um, when I was younger as a pastor, I would have tried to talk about that, but now I realize I just can't talk about that. So, um, so the slave came back and reported to his master and he said uh, the head of the household uh, became very uh, angry. And he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, well, master, what you commanded has been done. And still there's what? There's room. Do you know there's room at the cross for you, the old hymn? Anyway, moving on. There's room. And the master said to the slave, go out to the highways and, uh, along the hedges and compel them to come in. General call that my house, i.e. heaven, might be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. See, you have a free will to choose this general call. You can come or not come to the dinner that God and glory is going to have. By the way, there is food in heaven. Did you know this? Yes. Plus no weight gain. Awesome. Anyway, back to my sermon. Uh, he said, I want people to come to my dinner. So you see, there's a general call. People make lame excuses as why they're not going to accept the call. They're held responsible for not accepting the call. And Jesus says, go out and call more. That, those are going to be basically not the optimal people. But I want all the people to come to my table. And so you have a, you have a general call. On the, on the contrary, you also have what is called uh, a, a special call, an inward call. But first realize most of the people reject the gospel call. They reject it. I've heard all kinds of lame excuses as to why they do. Uh, what are your excuses for rejecting the gospel call? Uh, you, you must stop and entertain that for a moment because you'll be held responsible for your free will decision of accepting the gospel caller. Well, the, the, the Bible's anti-science. I'm very scientific, so I, I can't embrace the Bible because it's just, it's just anti-science. I, I, I don't know about you, but I love science uh, and I, I don't agree with that premise and neither do a whole lot of science scientists like Hugh Ross who's coming here next week. Uh, have a talk with him. Um, well, the Bible has too many contradictions. I've read and studied the Bible all of my life. Uh, I, I don't support that viewpoint. There's things you may not understand because you don't understand the culture, archaeology, word uses, etc. But uh, uh, that, that premise isn't worth missing heaven over. Uh, uh, well, Christians are just too hypocritical. Are some of them? Yes. Not at our church, but <laughs> are some Christians hypocritical? Yeah! But that doesn't mean that there aren't great Christians. So that's just a, that's just a, that's just a flimsy excuse. And on and on goes with the excuses. You know, others will say, well, the Bible is so narrow and exclusive and I'm more broad-minded, etc." cetera. Uh, no, Jesus is the one who said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. He made it narrow, not me. And if there's many ways to into God's heaven, then why did Jesus come and die anyway? Uh, but anyway, all the excuses, what are your excuses? So that's a general call. Then there's that inward call. So scholars call it um, um, the, the effective call or the uh, efficacious call, um, or some call it the irresistible call. And this is a mystery. So don't give me a whole lot of emails trying to explain a mystery. I have cognitive limitations as you do. So you have a free will to choose and God calls you, right? So if God calls you, it's ipso facto something he's gonna make sure happens if he called you. Because remember, he doesn't make mistakes. So in his dimensionality, he's calling you. And in your dimensionality, you have a free will, but you can't resist it, but you have a free will to do it. Do not ask me to explain the incongruity. I cannot. Some try, but you can't. 
So what, what, what do you think of this? Well, uh, Henry Thiessen, a, a, a theologian, says this. God is able to work sovereignly in the hearts of men to cause them to respond personally and by their own volition to call uh, to the call of God of, to, unto salvation. It says the coming together of sovereignty uh, and free will as they relate to the call of God are shown in an amazing way in the book of John, where it says he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Remember, they willfully rejected him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. See the free will? Uh, and even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born of who? God, working in relationship with their receiving his call. See the mystery? It's a mystery. So God chooses us and calls us, but what's he call us for? I mean, what's the ultimate purpose? And by the way, if he's chosen you and you are his child, don't forget, you're not alone. When you feel alone in the culture, you're not alone in that university class when you stand up for biblical concepts. The Lord is with you. Now, what's the ultimate call, purpose of his calling? Uh, that's what the last clause tells you. It says, it was for this that he called you through our gospel. Why? That you may gain the what? The glory. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have another um, uh, ice proposition here, the Greek uh, preposition uh, denoting purpose. Um, so what's the purpose? I think the purpose is twofold in that clause, that you may gain the glory. What glory are you talking about? Glory number one. A glory means that when you get to heaven, you are going to possess the shining glory of God. You don't shine now, but you're going to shine. Uh, you, you read about his blinding transfiguration in Matthew 17, which I think is just an amazing passage of scripture. It's when he goes out probably to Mount Tabor on the north, uh, north uh, eastern uh, rim of the Valley of Jezreel uh, near Nazareth. Uh, and he goes to the top of that mountain. And he, he, steps a, he, he allows Peter, James, and John to see his Shekinah glory. And that's where Peter, you gotta love Peter, makes just the amazing statement, the understatement of all time. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you were standing in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God Almighty, you'd say that, you know? And, and, and so Peter, they, they saw the Lord in his glory. They're just, they're just blown away. Um, the scripture tells us that when we see him, that we will be conformed to his very image. Romans 8, 29 talks about that. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49 talks about that. Uh, 1 John 3, verses 1 to 2 talks about that. When we see him, we will be like him instantly. Uh, reflecting his glory. Uh, I used to love to go to the county fair when I grew up in, in Southern California. Uh, and you could always buy all kinds of weird stuff at the county fair, right? Um, and one time I bought, uh, when they first came out, I know this is dating myself, but those little, I don't even know what they were. They were like plastic, but if you stuck them under a lamp, they would absorb the light and then you turn the lights out and they'd glow. Yeah. You know those things? Yeah. I don't even know if they still even make them anymore. But when they first came out, it was like, hey man, did you get one of those at the fair? Like, whoa, that's awesome. So I got, I got one and I stuck it under a lamp at the house, let it absorb light for a couple hours, turned the light out when I went to bed. And I'm like, Woo, whoa, it's, it's, it's just absorbed the light. But now it's a theological principle from the fair, right? Because that's you. When you're near Jesus, what are you gonna do? That, you're gonna absorb his light and you're gonna reflect it to everybody around you. So when we see each other, it's like, man, you shining today. This is amazing. Remember when Moses came down from the Mount? What was up with him? Did you, you read the Old Testament? He comes down from the mount. What's up with his face? Woo, man, can't even look at you. Why? Because his face is shining. Why is his face shining? He was in the presence of God. He, sh he reflected the glory of God. So when he says, 
What's the purpose of God calling you? To give you the opportunity to reflect the glory of God in heaven. Glory number two, it means that in heaven, you're going to see the stunning glory of God, the brilliance of his presence. I mean, what are you going to do your first day in heaven? I mean, when you pop in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, this is cool. Ah, everyone's a Pentecostal at that moment. You know, I'm not a hand-raising kind of guy. You might, are you? You know, I, whatever people are trying to get, I don't know. I mean, whatever, that's for you. I don't do it. I probably will do it when I see Jesus and see the glory. Because uh, you're going to see his jaw dropping glory. I mean, Isaiah saw it in Isaiah 6. He saw it. He hit the ground. And he said, I am an unclean man. I mean, he saw who he was in the brightness of God's glory. It tells us in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 21, you want to read it, uh, that in God's heaven, the new Jerusalem, no moon, no sun, don't need it. The time changed last night. Did you realize this? Some of our people are probably not here today because their time's kind of messed up. But, but in heaven, there, there's not what we have here, this 24-hour cycle thing. Uh, there's no night. Could you imagine all you can get done if you never got tired? Could you imagine all those projects that you haven't finished for years? You could satisfy your wife and you could just finish the projects. Because you got time, you got eternity, there's no night, and there's no darkness anywhere. You can see. Imagine, you're going to be glowing with your radiance of God, and you're going to see his radiance awesomely every day. Paul says, be encouraged. Now, bear in mind, those who reject the gospel, they don't inherit light, they inherit darkness. Now, the anomaly of hell is it's complete, utter darkness with fire present. How does that happen? Not normal fire. Trust the gospel and you wind up in God's presence, experiencing his glory. Uh, you gonna be there? You glory bound? So it's, to me, it's just like, yeah, it's hard to live down here on the old earth with all the things that happened, the tragedies, the brutality, all the things that we see. But I tell you one thing, one thing keeps me going is I'm glory bound and I know it. Are you? Are you? Now, next Paul reminds us uh, what our purpose is. And this is kind of the heart of, what he wanna, what, heart of what he wants to talk about. What's our purpose? We know our prospects are heaven, but what's our purpose before I get there, he's going to tell you in verse 15. So then, brethren, what's he want you to do? Stand firm. Stand firm, command number one, and do what? Hold to what? Traditions, which you were taught. Whether you got those traditions by word or mouth or by a letter of mouth or, or by, whether we wrote you a letter. Hold to that tradition, that, that teaching. Uh, this, this phrase, so then, uh, in Greek, it's called araun. Araun is a, is a Pauline uh, uh, rhetorical device where he, he, he's like an attorney, where he's like, I just presented all this evidence. Now I'm going to kind of sum it up. So what do I really want you to be thinking about? Well, think about what you're supposed to be doing before the man of lawlessness shows up. You're supposed to do two things. And he gives you two imperatives. Those two imperatives are present tense imperatives, meaning they're perpetual and they're not optional. So you can't say, hey, I'm 18. I don't have to do these things all the time. No, no, these are for all Christians at all time. You should be holding fast, uh, standing firm and holding fast to traditions. Um, back in uh, 1972, my parents drove us here from Southern California because my dad's uh, boss uh, with US Customs took a job with the Nixon administration. So we drove out here from California uh, and we drove across the United States every summer anyway to South Carolina to see my dad's 10 sisters. So we were used to the drive, but DC was even further. 
Uh, and it was 1972, Vietnam War, you know, all that was going on back then. So his, his, his uh, boss and friend uh, was trying to woo my dad to work here. Uh, and it was July. <laughs> we told my dad, I don't care what they offer you. I don't care what rank you make. And I don't care what your pay grade becomes. Your children are not coming here. Uh, anyway, back, back to my sermon. So we, he takes us around D.C., shows us D.C. And it was back in the day when you could drive up in front of the Lincoln Memorial, remember? And there wasn't a fence around the White House and all that stuff. Uh, and so he took us to Arlington Cemetery. I was humbled. I was absolutely humbled uh, what I saw there. He took us to, to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I don't think I've ever seen anything so amazing. You know, the, the old guard there? the soldiers, the changing of the guard, precision walking, the rifle, the expansion of the rifle, the spinning. I mean, it was unbelievable to me as a, as a kid. Uh, I, I was, how old I was, 12, whatever I was. Um, it's just unbelievable. But then to learn that that guy never leaves his post. And so then when, that was 1972. So when I moved here and I go to the Arlington Cemetery one day with my wife to go see it again, it's been a lot of, now it's like 2008. Last time I saw it was 1972. And that soldier, those guys are still there. They never quit. Rain, sunshine, sleet, terrorist attacks. They're walking that line, are they not? With that rifle. And I thought about that a lot. I mean, that is to be me. That's to be me and you as Christians where God has placed us. What is our duty? He tells you, stand firm, stand firm. Never leave your post, never leave your post. So you have to stop and ask yourself, as I have to stop and ask myself, the tendency is to not stand firm. So you have to stop and ask yourself some very hard questions. Where in my life am I not standing firm when it comes to doctrine? Because that's the, the word tradition here is the word in the New Testament for doctrine, doctrinal teaching. Paul says, whether we as the apostles taught you this doctrine or you heard it from us, Stand firm in what we have taught you. Where, where are you compromising doctrine in your life? I've, I've, had to, I've had to look at my life. My culture wants me to believe one thing about sex and gender, and the scriptures teach me a whole other thing. Am I, am I holding to scripture or am I caving to culture? Uh, my, my culture wants me to think differently about Israel, God's original chosen people. And my culture wants me to hate them. But I look at the word of God and I read Genesis 12 that God called Abraham and said he was gonna bless the world through Abraham and his seed. So I'm tempted to, or to, to compromise what I know the scriptures teach so I fit in with my culture. It's that whole standing thing. So Paul says, as you head into dark days and hard times in the preparation for the lawless one, stand your ground, don't give up. And some Christians can't even ha ha handle a pastor even talking about these things. It's sad. Well, that's how you need to know. You need to have a little time with Jesus and say, God, have I drifted? Have I drifted? Uh, you, might, you might feel that somebody so profoundly hurt you as a Christian. Trust me, it's happened to me, happened to my wife. Some Christian has, the deepest hurts as a Christian come from your Christian friends. It's unfortunate. But you look at how they've impacted you and you've had those thoughts in your mind thinking, I will never go to church again because of what they've done to me. I've had those thoughts. And then I thought, no, I have a calling on my God. I'm from God to do what I do. Uh, and that situation is not gonna, no way. I'm standing firm. And so you have to constantly look at your life and say, God, where in my life am I standing firm? Where am I not standing firm? And then he says, hold fast. He wanted, hold fast. Um, 
Krateo is what the word means. And if you look it up lexically, what it means is uh, it is used in Matthew 14, 3 of taking somebody into a custody or arresting them or seizing them. I used to be the chaplain for 1,300 sheriff officers. I will tell you, when they were arresting somebody, it wasn't like, oh, could you please come over here so I could slap these cups on you? Please cooperate, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was no simple thing because a lot of the, the perpetrators, they were not pleasant individuals. I mean, I watched the people, my dad, my dad broke his uh, finger one time arresting a guy because the guy wouldn't, you know, cooperate. He's fighting the guy. I mean, so Paul uses this word that's used for making arrest. If you're going to arrest somebody, you want to really grab them. That's why I've showed you those grips I use, Captain's a Crush, that I use all the time. Because I've been doing them since high school, but then I went up to a whole nother level with my grip when I ran into an Army Airborne Special Ops guy here a couple of years ago who's like, hey, man. You got a good grip, but you need these. And he showed me what to buy. So I left the stuff from REI behind and, <laughs> and I got these other things. And, and, and now I've told police officers, because you know, they're like, whoa. I'm like, you need this when you arrest somebody. Why? You don't want them to get away. You want to grab them. So Paul says, when you're thinking about doctrine, think of it like that. You grab them, you're not going to let go. As I was working on this sermon and working on this word, I was sitting at my desk eating my lunch and um. I was, I was just watching the news and clips and things like that. And a guy came on and he was talking about how he took his son to an amusement park. And he, you know how the little, the guide, you know, you gotta be so tall to get on and stuff. Uh, and he, he kind of let his, his son really wanted to go on this roller coaster. So he, he just kind of fudged and got his son on there, but it wasn't quite big enough. And then the horn, you know, the harness comes over your shoulders. So he said, the harnesses came down, we got locked in and everything was great. The thing took off. And then he said, I realized Number one, my son didn't really fit in the harness. And number two, we were coming to a complete loop. What's a dad to do? You're on your own. He said, he said I reached over, I grabbed my son, and I held him the tightest I've ever held him. So that when we went upside down, he didn't fall out. And then he said, we came out of that loop. And then I realized we're going through a corkscrew. <laughs> He's like, what, what do you do? You don't let go, Right. And I was reading that at lunch and I'm thinking, or watching it, I was thinking, well, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. That when it comes to doctrine, you don't look at it and you think, well, I've got to fudge on my paper here because if, if I don't fudge, this progressive professor who hates all these Christian concepts, he's going to give me, a, he's going to knock me down a couple of letter grades. So I got to, you know, rescope this paper. No, 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 you don't fudge. You stand your ground, you keep your grip. That's what Paul says. So stop and ask yourself, where, are you, where have you released your grip on doctrine? Where have you? Uh, Harvard University used to be a Christian school. You know this? They were a Christian school. Uh, a couple years ago, they hired a new head of chaplains. His name is uh, Greg Epstein. He's an atheist. He's the spiritual leader. Listen to what he said. Quote, we don't look to God for answers. We are each other's answers. Huh? I read that this week and I'm like, what are you talking about? Because if you say something like that, then there are, there's no truth. If there's no truth, there's just individual truths and all those truths, well, I believe this and I believe that. And all of a sudden perversity is truth and everything's truth. Then there's chaos. And I just finished reading the book of Judges the other day in my Hebrew Bible. And I remember the last verse says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Uh, Judges 21, verse 25. Absolutely. Okay, what's wrong in our culture? There's no truth. There's truths. 
and everybody is fighting each other for truth. We're totally balkanized. What does Paul say? Don't let go of truth. Don't be intimidated. Don't give up. Hold on. Hold on. What is your purpose? He just told you what your purpose is. Two things. What's the first one? Stand your ground when it comes to sound teaching. And number two, don't let go of sound teaching. And then lastly, he says, let me pray for you. Why? He knows there's power in prayer. So what's he pray? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us, what he gave it, what have we got? Eternal comfort and good hope by grace. What's he want God had to do for us? Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and every word. Every good word is what he's talking about. Uh, what's interesting here in the text, now may our Lord Jesus Christ, he, Paul usually puts God the Father first. He switches it here. And he didn't just put Jesus Christ first in front of the Father. He calls him what? Lord Jesus Christ. The, this is, uh, and in the, in the Greek text, it doesn't start with the word now. Uh, the word starts with himself. Autus is the Greek word. Uh, you can see it uh, right there. Autus. Uh, this is but himself. Hakurios is the Lord. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord. Uh, when you look at how the word Lord is used in the Old Testament, uh, it's translated Yahweh. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, he says, and the Lord said, this is English, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. In the Hebrew text, the word Lord is the word Yahweh. If, in the Greek text, if you read the LXX, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, this Greek version of the Old Testament says, if you read it, and he, but, and he said the Lord to Moses. Uh, it takes the word Yahweh, the name of God Almighty, and it uses the word kurios, Lord, for that. Paul's a rabbinical scholar. He knows the Old Testament well. Who does he call Jesus Christ? Lord. What did that mean theologically? He's the divine one. And he's on par with the Father. He just gave you the, the, the Father and the Son, the, two, the first two members of the Holy Trinity. Now think about it this way. They are there to give you eternal comfort. That on any given day, whatever's going on in your marriage, your life, your job, whatever, but I got eternal comfort. I don't know about you, but I do. Because that comes from the Trinity. He's there to give you that. And if you don't feel like you've got it, tell him, Lord, I need some more of that. But in the meantime, what are you supposed to be doing? Two things. He says, you need to be giving yourself to every good work and every word, every good word. What does our old world need? They need to see Christians who do those two things, good works and have good words. Because what are they about? They're about rhetoric. They're not about reason. They're not about good works. And if they do good works, there's always some kind of strings attached. No, Christians are supposed to be like Christ, good works to anybody and everybody, show them love and back it up with good words that build people up and not blast them. That's how to live before Jesus returns. And he is coming back. Are you ready for glory? I am. Let's pray. God, thank you that we have great hope on what lies ahead. It is hard to walk on this old earth. We have carnal bodies. We have fleshly desires that war against the soul, but we thank you we got the spirit to give us victory when we avail ourselves of his great strength. Uh, give us great comfort for the days ahead. Uh, and may we really do the two things he talked about here. Is we, we stand on truth uh, and we hold fast to those things that are true and we shower those around us with good works and we have good words coming out of our mouths to bless people and uh, bless our church when we live like that. In Christ's name, amen.